Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. When we think of a princess, especially a Disney princess, we don't often tend to think about a specific action or a specific line from them. We tend to remember them through song. A dream is a wish your heart makes, part of your world, almost there, how far I'll go. The songs of Disney princess films have this prevailing nature to them about the power of love, the power of a wish, or the power of a dream. These expertly composed songs almost take on a life of their own and in some ways transcend the movies that they're from. The princesses often use music as a mode of communication for their pain and what limits them, like when Mulan sings asking when her The princesses often use music as a mode of communication for their pain and what limits them, like when Mulan sings asking when her reflection will show who she is inside. It's a mode of communication for their curiosity, like when Ariel sings about asking her questions and getting some answers about the surface world. And of course, it serves as a mode of communication for their love, like when Snow White sings about the one day that her prince will come. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the musical world of the Disney princesses, exploring the songs that they have on their heart that have worked their way into ours and how they came to be. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. The history of Disney princess music and just Disney music in general happens at a really interesting intersection of film history. So sound in film was introduced around the mid to late 1920s. There's a lot of contention over what is the first sound film or like talkie. And because depending on your definition of a sound film, the answer to that question could be 1926's Don Juan, it could be 1927's The Jazz Singer, which is like the most agreed upon, or it can be 1928's Lights of New York. I'm not here to discuss which of these is the one, but you just need that foundation. <laughs> the point is that sound in film is a relatively new advent, and Disney wasn't too far behind with its adoption of sound in its films. Most notably with Steamboat Willie, which was released in 1928, which was the first sound cartoon. However, original music for the studio wouldn't come until a little bit later. 
Disney was known for using public domain music for many of their shorts, so when it came time to make their first full-length animated film in Snow White, making original music for it was top of mind. And that statement is really hilarious if you know anything about uh, the mouse and public domain. For the film, Disney called in composer Frank Churchill and lyricist Larry Morey, who were responsible for the kind of operetta sound in the film. And you might be asking, like, why would they go the route of making music that sounds like an operetta? And that ladders to a larger concept with Disney music, which is to say that Disney music is popular music, which sounds like, a you know, I'm, I'm saying it as if it's some profound thought, but it's not. Like, it's just to say that whatever is the genre du jour of the time tends to be reflected in Disney music. So in the 30s, operettas were popular, especially on stage with fairy tales. And so there wanted to be kind of a natural stage to screen connection happening. And so you have an operetta that was used. A lot of what was going on as far as the function of music within Snow White borrowed a lot from the Broadway theater stage tradition because that was the one place that was consistently sharing narratives via music. So of course they were going to borrow a lot from from the stage. And for film, that was kind of a, a weird concept because like I said, sound in film was relatively new by the time Snow White came out. Like it was under 20 years old. Um, so the concept of hearing music and hearing people talking during a film was new. And so this kind of formula or this idea of how you use music in film, especially via a musical, was kind of being like they were flying the plane as they were building it. They were creating that formula that would then go on to be used in many a movie musical. And this isn't to say that like Snow White was the first movie musical at all, but it is to say that it definitely helped to refine that formula that we would know to be associated with the movie musical. And there's this kind of really symbiotic relationship that's happening between uh, the stage and screen as far as how music is is used. And it's a really cool thing. It's a bit of like a, a cultural exchange, if you will. So like I said, Disney music is popular music and popular music is it's marketing. Like ultimately you're making music that the masses will want to, you know, listen to over and over again. And really soundtracks and like any physical like thing that had the music from a film on it was the most prominent form of movie merchandising. So they sold the soundtrack for Snow White when it was released. Um, and it, I think was the first like complete soundtrack to be sold to the masses. Um, and it did crazy numbers for Disney. And it was a really smart financial investment because think about it. There wasn't really any other way for people to relive, you know, the the music of a film or the story or the characters or the comedy or any of those things. Uh, outside of the theater, you you had to go back to the theater in order to relive all of those things. So at home, any way that you can do that was going to, you were going to try and get your hands on it. And so obviously there's no TV, there's no VCRs, there's no DVDs, there's none of that, no Blu-rays. So the one kind of big piece of merchandising connected to this film was its soundtrack. And that's why it sold so well. So 
years past, if you've listened to episode one, where I kind of lay the foundation of the history of Disney princesses, you know that there's a big jump in time between Snow White and Cinderella. Cinderella is one of their first full-length features post-World War II. The company is kind of in financial recovery from World War II. There are a lot of things going on. So Cinderella is kind of a, it's a big swing. Um, and there was a lot riding on Cinderella and Cinderella did great. And the music is a, a very big piece of that. Again, they're continuing their tradition of selling the soundtrack for the for the movie alongside the movie. So you've got a piece of it that you can take home with you. And that's already kind of ingraining people to really start keying in on the the sound and the music attached to these films. And so from a technological perspective, they're continuing to push the boundaries of like what is being able to be accomplished um, within these films as far as music goes. So for Cinderella, there were a couple of different technological things at play, I guess, that changed when the film was being was being made. So one thing was the process of what was called Mickey Mousing. And basically that was animators having to match the animation to sound. So you would see it a lot in shorts, especially like Mickey Mouse shorts, where you would see that Mickey's motions and actions were being matched to the music. And there were a lot of there was a lot of controversy around this process because it kind of a lot of animators felt that it took away from the creative process of being able to create this character and, you know, really think through their movements and make sure that it's organic and all these different things. You're kind of having to animate to a beat. And not every animator really liked being constricted by having to animate to a beat. And so for Cinderella, they reversed that process and it famously was really enjoyed by by the animators. That is to say that like the sound, so the music and the score of the film was being composed to the animation and like the movements of the characters. So one of the composers on Cinderella kind of likened the process to playing like live music to like a play or something like it again, it goes back to that theater tradition. Um, so it's almost as if Cinderella kind of had this like orchestra pit that's playing as the actions of the film are, are playing out, which is the opposite of Mickey Mousing, which is the reverse, whereas like the music is done first and then the animation is done second. The animation was done first in this regard, and then the music was done to the animation, which is a process that I'm pretty sure is still used today. There was also the creation of the Walt Disney like record company too. So there was a formal like branch of the company that was whose sole purpose was to sell music um, from from these movies. Um, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. At this point, they had a lot of hits, either from Snow White, like, you know, I'm Wishing, or Someday My Prince Will Come, or, you know, Hi-Ho with the dwarves. Or, you know, you also, like, in between, like, the time between Snow White and Cinderella, you get songs from, like, Pinocchio and Fantasia. And so there was a vested interest, and it was time for the company to invest in the music that they were creating. And so with the release of Snow White, you get the creation of Walt Disney Records. And then you also get another innovation with technology. And like I said, 
every almost every princess film we get some advancement within technology like these the the princesses are pushing technological bounds what can i say women's stories matter they just do but the (laughs) the other technological advancement that was happening with the music of Cinderella was the use of multi-tracks. So Eileen Woods, who is the voice of Cinderella and the singing voice of Cinderella, she sang, like, take the song uh, Sing Sweet Nightingale, um, which is one of my favorite songs. I love that song so much. But there's a point in the song where you hear multiple voices, and that's not, it's not background singers with Eileen Woods she's singing with herself and so basically it's just the use of her singing you know like one piece of the harmony on one track another piece of the harmony on the other track and then the main melody on one track and then combining all of those tracks together uh and basically have her harmonizing with herself like that process was was made popular i know again there's some contention between if that was like a holy like disney creation um or if it was used earlier than that but as far as I know it was something that was made popular with Disney, like that that production process with music was made popular with Disney and with Snow White. Um, so that's what we're going to go with. But that also kind of brings me to a very interesting uh, thing that we're going to be talking about throughout the, the month for sure, um, which is this kind of contention around the classic era Disney princess songs and their messaging. So as I I mentioned a couple of them, like someday my prince will come, like I'm wishing for the one I love to find me today. Like that's the piece of the lyric from I'm wishing, um, which I think is also called one song. I don't know. Um, And then you have like, uh, so this is love and need all these other songs. And I can't remember the one from sleeping beauty. I'm it's escaping me. Um, once upon a dream. That's the what. It, that's what it is. So a lot of these songs are centered around love and the kind of passive nature of all of these women in these films, and just kind of waiting for for life to happen and waiting for love to happen. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I saw a very interesting TikTok uh, that I think it came from like a fan page for the, for the princesses but they did a compilation of the different people that have played or are going to play live action adaptations of the disney princesses um who kind of like d- gave the same talk track that tends to happen when talking about disney princesses when which is to say like you know for my version i wanted to make her like active and i wanted her to you know want more in life than just having a man and like finding love and everything like that and this and this page kind of like uh didn't enjoy that narrative that constantly kind of gets peddled surrounding the princesses and i think the music is really kind of a key point here because a lot of the times there are songs centered around these princesses finding love in some way And so I think there's this kind of, there's this really interesting dichotomy that tends to happen with these classic era songs, which is to say, like, in a modern context, yeah, they're not the most active members of their own, (laughs) of their own story, or they, they constantly sing about love and like, what else do they want? Like, do they, do they have any other, you know, desires or anything that they want to accomplish? And then by that same token, you also have to remember the 
temporal context of when these songs were being written and composed and performed and released. Like Snow White, the 30s. Cinderella, the 50s. Sleeping Beauty, the late 50s. Like this, these are not known for being the most progressive times in the world. And I think a lot of those songs are just a product of of their time. Now, there have definitely been more reimaginings with these characters to be a little bit more active, especially with their songs, like singing about, you know, more of their desires and more of their hopes and their wishes that don't have to do with love or romance. But I think it, these songs, it's tough. You know, it's hard. Like I saw a clip also where Kira Knightley said that she doesn't, um, she, I don't know, I really don't know how old this is, but she didn't allow her daughter to watch, um, I think it was Cinderella. Like she didn't allow her daughter to watch Cinderella. Like don't, you know, don't go to a ball for a man or something like that. Like it was a lot of the, you know, it, it was, it probably was a clip from like 2013. And that was just a very big kind of, like there wasn't a ton of, it felt like nuance around the a feminist reading of the Disney princesses and the kind of um, different pieces of their of their story and of their character. And again, we'll get into all the nitty gritty of that later on in the, in the month. But at least for for the time being, I think there is necessary. We just need to be cognizant of the time that it was released not to say that it was right by any means because we should want more for for girls especially but also you can't change a song written by a man in the 30s for a princess you know what i mean like <laughs> like i i wish you could but you cannot and so i think that context is very 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 key for the classic era of princesses and their songs and about, you know, what they want. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment to shout out today's partner, Athletic Greens. Now, I started taking AG1 in the morning before getting my day started, and it makes me feel very unstoppable. Like, I immediately fell in love with how easy it made getting in all of my necessary vitamins that I needed for the day, and I didn't have to worry about anything for the rest of the day. As you could probably guess, I'm expending a lot of brain power rubbing my two brain cells together every single day, and I'm constantly reading and writing, and that just takes a lot out of me. So I started taking AG1, and I immediately felt this energy boost, and it's made creating content so much easier. Plus, it was super simple to fit into my routine because all I had to do was mix a scoop of powder into some water and I've got all the vitamins I need for the rest of the day and it's literally perfect for me. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So go to athleticgreens.com slash afternoon. That's athleticgreens.com slash afternoon check it out. So there's a, another big time jump. And again, go back to episode one, if you want to know why there was a big time jump. Um, but needless to say, there we'd take a big leap from the 50s to the late 80s. And the next kind of big showing of Disney music via the princesses comes in the form of The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Um, and then it would continue on for the rest of the 90s. But this new sound was kind of being adopted by Disney. It doesn't sound 
so crazy different from the other princess films, but there's definitely a more contemporary feel to to the sound. And I think the thing that we can often credit with being like sounding like Disney music when we think of like Disney music, the two people that we can credit to that sound are Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. So in the late 80s, there was a big, massive revamp of Disney Animation Studios. Disney Animation Studios was very much on its last leg um, in, a, in a lot of ways. It was kind of bleeding money. It was not you know, producing the hits like it used to. And it was on the brink of kind of being folded into the company. And that was due kind of a little bit in part to the Black Cauldron. I'm so sorry. But that's a story for a whole nother day. So there was a need for a necessary uh, revamping of the studio. So Michael Eisner is appointed as CEO of the company in the early to mid 80s. And he then brings in uh, a man by the name of Jeffrey Katzenberg to head up Disney Animation Studios. And so with that, he kind of like Katzenberg kind of like cleans house and he is like, okay, we're going to we are going to be the the team to beat in the animation game um, in Hollywood. And he did accomplish that. I will, to his credit, he absolutely accomplished that. So with that, he brought in for the production of their newest princess film at the time, like they're revamping the princesses. And so for this, he brings in lyricist Howard Ashman and composer Alan Menken. And so both of them got their start in the theater and they both were working before like working with Disney. They had just got off of completing their off-Broadway musical of Little Shop of Horrors. And then around a little bit after that, Howard Ashman then went on to be the screenwriter for the 1986 film adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors. So they both were like pretty accomplished within the film world, making the jump to the screen, stage to screen. That connection is still very much there, uh, even, you know, almost 50 years removed from Snow White. So the two brought in this really kind of heavy stage influence to the to the princesses and mainly to Ariel, which, which she was the first one that they were working on. And there's also something to know about like how the princesses sound. So I know that I'm talking a lot about the songs themselves and the reception of the songs and like how they were produced and all those things. But who are the people responsible for the actual sound of a princess singing? And oftentimes, again, stage to screen connection, they were coming from women who were on stage in some way. But a lot of these, a lot of the Disney princesses came from came from the stage, especially the 90s Disney princesses. If you kind of look at the the lineup of, you know, the singing voices, especially of the Disney princesses, many of them were were Broadway actresses. So you had Jodie Benson, who's the singing voice and the speaking voice of Ariel. Um, you had Paige O'Hara, you who was the singing voice and speaking voice for Belle. You had Leah Salonga, who was the singing voice for Jasmine. 
you had Judy Kuhn, who was the singing voice for Pocahontas. You had Leah Salonga again, who was the who was the singing voice for Mulan. So you had a lot of these Broadway actresses who were able to come in and really, you know, kind of get a good grasp of what this new sound that Howard Ashman and Alan Menken were introducing. And it's because it is a stage sound. It's a Broadway sound. And I think that's why, like, if they couldn't find an actress, if they had an actress who could do the speaking parts and she was the perfect you know, speaking voice for the princess, but she couldn't sing, they were going to go to Broadway and find her singing voice. Um, and so that is why the that sound feels so, like these actresses feel so tailor-made for this new sound from, from Ashman and Mencken. But Ashman and Mencken also kind of introduced this concept to the world of Disney that had been a standard in on stage and within Broadway called the I Want Song. And you may be thinking, oh, I don't really know what an I Want Song is. You absolutely do. You've heard an I Want Song. And I mentioned a a lot of them at the top of the episode. So an I Want Song is basically a song that expresses the kind of deeper purposes or desires of a character. And they're often sung before the character embarks on this amazing adventure to attain the thing that they sang about in the I Want Song. So these songs kind of build the emotional stakes that the audience may have in that character because they are hearing some of their truest wishes and desires. And oftentimes they're singing this song by themselves. So they're revealing their most true self to themselves for the first time before they go on this massive journey. And there's also kind of a a counter to it, which we see with a lot of the villains in these films, which is the I Am song, which is a lot more braggadocious. Um, It doesn't always end up that way, but they tend to be songs that describe who a character is, and they can be sung by, you know, a third party. So some examples of some villain songs that are I Am songs are, are like Mine, Mine, Mine from Pocahontas and Cruella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians. Like those are some examples of an I Am song. And they tend to be a little bit more self-serving and a little bit more arrogant, and that's why they're often sung by the villain. Um, Though there are plenty of examples of I Am songs being sung by protagonists, uh, because Moana sings an I Am song, which is I Am Moana. But in the beginning of the film, she sings How Far I'll Go, which is her I Want song. She wants to get out and see the world beyond the breaks, you know, like she wants to explore the ocean because she's been kept from it for her whole life. So laddering back to the Disney Renaissance princesses, the I Want song kind of becomes this very purposeful thing within each of these movies, allowing a moment for the heroine to truly sing about what it is that she desires. And it kind of is answering some of the criticisms that Disney received of the classic Disney princesses who we remember are kind of products of their time. Um, That isn't to say that they're automatically bad because they're a product of their time, but the music is can be considered a product of its time. But by the time you get to the late 90s or late 80s, early 90s, I should say, the I Want song is kind of rectifying that critique and allowing these characters to sing about things that, you know, really haven't been sung about by the princesses before. So Ariel's I Want song is obviously part of your world and her desires are to get up, 
and be a part of the <laughs> be a part of your world. Like she wants to get up to the surface and have legs and ask those questions and get some answers about humanity. Belle, her I want song is I think the re reprise reprise, I never know how to pronounce it, of of Belle, the song, the opening song. Um where she sings about a wanting adventure in the great wide somewhere and then she goes and embarks on it. Jasmine doesn't really get a proper I want song, but she you if you consider a whole new world something that she, she wants this love with Aladdin, so that can work. That that works that's good enough. Um but again, she's not the protagonist like she's not the main protagonist of Aladdin. Aladdin is shocker, I know. Um but Aladdin does get an I want song in, in, in a way um, via, oh my gosh, One Jump Ahead and like the, the reprise of One Jump Ahead. So Disney music around this time begins to be a lot more introspective, I would say, and go deeper into the core of a lot of these characters and give them a lot more complexity and a lot more depths and I think that's the best part about Disney princess songs is that they can communicate these emotions via song that may not work as well via traditional dialogue in the film like I think a song can communicate and tell a story in a way that regular words often cannot and it's a really powerful piece of of storytelling um to use a song to kind of have that be the the mode of communication so this formula that we kind of know to be the disney princess song formula via the i want song there's always a song that's kind of the like um the inciting incident song like it's setting the the stage for what's going to happen or what you're going to see so in the little mermaid the first song that we hear is the fathoms below the first song in the beauty and the beast is bell um the first song we hear in aladdin is one jump ahead uh there's a lot of these songs like uh, honor to us all is one of the first songs we hear in mulan so there's always a song to set up here's the problem here's the landscape and then you have the protagonist come in and sing and here's how that's not going to work for me. <laughs> and I'm going to go off and find my my adventure elsewhere. And that formula stays pretty consistent until now, pretty much. The only real, like, I would say differences between the Disney princess music era of, of this time is that I think that there is a little bit of a push away from the stage tradition but not all that much like I think it's not anything egregious because like I said Disney music is popular music so it's more so that it's adding these different genre elements to the stage tradition um that Disney has kind of become known for within its music versus a complete abandonment of the, the stage tradition and I think there's also a big uptick in like popular artists being involved in the music of these different Disney princess films. Um, I think the biggest point in turn with that is in the early 90s when you had the kind of like, um, to me, they always felt like adult covers of, <laughs> of different songs. So it felt like like the Celine Dion, People Bryson version of uh, Beauty and the Beast. Like it's slower. It's a lot more soulful. Like there's a lot... 
you're you could hear it on the radio and you wouldn't think that it's from a Disney movie, but it is just in how it's it's produced. Um, so I think there was a bigger push or a bigger emphasis on um, bringing in some more like popular artists and having them do music, whether it's actually on the back end. So composing. So we know that for the new Little Mermaid film, Lin-Manuel Miranda is collaborating with Alan Menken um, to compose the music for the film. And there have been other instances where other popular, you know, producers, a lot of popular artists come on and like sing songs for the films. And so I think that's just, it just, it comes as a, as a, a good reaction to, to the Disney princess. It's like a lot of people come in and sing these songs because they're like, yeah, I want to be a princess. I want to sound like a princess. Um, and I think there's also kind of a, a move back towards uh, like we had in the beginning, which is where you have these kind of like singer speaker duos. Um, so whoever is being cast for the Disney princess role also is singing the the roles as well. So they're, they, I think the split roles thing kind of faded, like came up and went down um in the 90s and it didn't really hold all that steady but now it's it's pretty much like how it was when it first began with like Adriana Casalotti, Eileen Woods, you know, Jody Benson, people like that who were doing the speaking and the singing. So, overall, Disney Princess songs as you could probably tell, they're some of my favorite songs. I think the any song that, you know, talks about the power of a dream or the power of a wish or even the power of love, I think is always going to, you know, fill, fill me with warm and fuzzies. And I think they, like I said, it really does have this prevailing nature to them. Like these songs have messages that are everlasting and that are not confined to just the movies that they're in. Like they are you know, songs with messages that are applicable to a lot of different things. And it's been really cool to see how people and in the years that have followed a lot of these movies, how they, you know, adapt these songs to their own experiences, because you don't have to experience hearing a dream is a wish your heart makes um, in the same way that Cinderella does, because many of us are not, you know, sitting, sweeping stuff surrounded by woodland creatures like at least i'm not um but you can adapt a song like that to to your own experiences or almost there from the princess and the frog that's that feeling of like your dream is almost in your hands you're almost there um and you've worked so hard to get there that whole thing um it's just really it's really neat and it's really cool and i think it's just the the power of music within these princesses and i think ultimately that's what's made that's a big part of why these movies are so effective the princesses are the characters that i think are the most inviting and accepting of how music is going to function and i think people really really like that format and they like being guided by music because music like i said is a great storyteller and i think that is what ultimately makes these movies so effective and it all starts with with the music So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You can tell me how you're feeling about the pod. And I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. 
If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to go and frolic in a meadow and sing about wanting adventure in the great wide somewhere and wondering when my reflection will show who I am inside. I'm not going to remember all of that. Bestie, I get it. And I am right behind you. But I left all that information in the description down below just for you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another princess pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Are you a Marvel fan? Matt, you know I am. Jeff, I was asking the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it seemed like a weird question because, you know, we've been doing a Marvel podcast together for nine years now. No, no, I was trying to grab the attention of all the Marvel fans out there for this ad. Oh. I thought it was weird, too. You should definitely warn us. Good note, Ashley. Well, if you like Marvel movies and TV as much as we do, join us for the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. He did it again. Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade! And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast.